Well, guys, um, this is going to be the last time we meet for the year. Well, we'll actually start back up in September. We're going to take a summer break, which we normally do. Uh, I had planned on going into the middle of June, and uh, then I uh, woke up and smelled the coffee and listened to my wife. And um, we are uh, headed to Ethiopia the end of June uh, for a 10-day teaching trip to Ethiopian pastors. And um, I have not even yet begun to prepare for that. And so... um, I need to do so. And so I'm going to start working on that. And also uh, we're trying to get geared up to write all the DVDs and uh, scripts and the devotional guides for the fall campaign, which comes up in September, which I have also not started writing. So I'm going to spend some time working on that. So this will be our last meeting uh, for the time being. We're going to wrap up the first chapter of James. Then we're going to take a break for the summer, and we'll start back up probably the first week in September, and we'll email you about that and let you know. Uh, what's going to happen then. But we're going to wrap up chapter 1 of James this morning and uh, then take a short break for the summer. You know, as we've talked over the last few weeks, um, the book of James is uh, really a book on the theology of suffering. We've talked a lot about trials because that's what the book's about. And last week we we looked at this issue of how we have two choices when it comes to a trial. Trials are going to come we can't avoid them. We don't get out of them because we accept Christ, because we're believers. So when a trial comes, we can do one of two things. We can take it as a potential test of our faith, and we can then learn to persevere and endure, and that produces spiritual maturity. Or we can allow that trial to become a source of temptation, which leads to sin, which ultimately results in death, separation from God. Uh, so we got two choices. And so we need to, when we encounter a trial, we need to pray. We need to pray for perseverance. We need to pray for endurance. But we also need to pray for protection. Protection from what? The trial? No, really protection from how we might react to the trial. Uh, The sin that comes out in the midst of a trial. The anger, the resentment, wanting to get even, wanting to get back. Um, All kinds of things happen when we encounter a trial. So we need to pray for protection. We need to pray for God's provision. We also need to pray that he would just keep us safe from our own sinful self when we encounter a trial. So we need to pray, Lord, keep me safe. But we also need to pray another thing that we're going to talk about this morning, and that's, Lord, keep me pure. Keep me pure. Um, You know, when I encounter a trial, I don't think about that. I, I don't think about keep me pure in the midst of this trial. But reality is for each of us is that when we get into a trial, we're, our tendency is, guys, to react in a wrong way, to react in a sinful way, um, not a righteous way. And so to pray that, Lord, keep me pure in the midst of this trial is something that we really need to think about and pray for as we encounter trials. So this morning, I want to take a, a few minutes, and you're going to take a few minutes in your, your discussion time around the tables with Psalm chapter 25 and just a few of the verses, if you did your lesson this week, you spent a little bit of time in here, and I want us to spend a little bit of time around our tables this morning in this passage, but here's the verses I want you to camp on. It's chapter 25 of Psalms, verses 4 and 5 and verses 20 and 21. Listen to what it says. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Guard my soul and deliver me. 
Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Now, this psalm was written, as many of the psalms were, by David in the midst of difficulties and trials. Uh, David went through a lot. You know the story of David and how when he was uh, anointed king by the prophet, the only problem was there was already a king on the throne and it was Saul. And so David spent years of his life running from Saul who spent years trying to kill David. Uh, And he had 3,000 hired mercenaries whose sole job was to eliminate David from the face of the earth. So David had some trials. He had some tribulations. And he writes this. And it's, it's really a prayer, and uh, it's a prayer of request to God. So let's, let's take a look at this. What, is, what does David pray? I went and looked at some uh, various translations to see how they, they took these verses, and here's what I, I discovered. One way you can look at this is he says, Show me your, how you work, God. School me in your ways. Show me how you work. One of the things that David prayed in the midst of a trial is, show me how you work. School me. Teach me your ways because his ways are what? Not our ways. How he works is different than the way we work. Another thing he prayed is, be my guide and teacher in the true way. What's the true way versus the false way? The human way versus the righteous way, the godly way. He says, protect me, deliver me. One translation says, guard my soul. Guard my soul from making bad choices, wrong decisions, wrong reactions. Protect me from what? Again, not just the external circumstances, but from within. Protect me from me. Um, I'm usually my own worst enemy in the midst of a trial. It's not so much what's happening to me as how I react to it. So he says, protect me, deliver me. May integrity and godliness protect me. See, he's asking for something in the midst of the trial. He wants to have integrity, wholeness, completeness, godliness in every area of his life. Protect me with that. May your integrity in me protect me. See, his prayer is a little bit different than most of ours when we encounter trials. So when you and I encounter trials, which is going to happen, how should we respond? Well, we should desire these things, spiritual purity over our own comfort. Spiritual purity over our own comfort. What's the natural reaction in the midst of a trial? I just want it to go away. I want to get back to the way it was. I want life to be easy again. I want my world back the way I thought it was before. But we should desire spiritual purity over our own comfort. Moral courage in the face of difficulties. That I would have the moral courage to stand up and do the right thing. And not do the ungodly thing, the unrighteous thing. We should desire God's instruction as well as his protection. And see, we we don't want to really learn anything in a trial. We just want to be protected from it. We especially, as guys, typically don't want to learn anything about us in the midst of a trial. I love to learn about other people in the midst of a trial. You know, I love to tell my wife, if we're having financial difficulties, how she's not very good with money. Um, Not a real good lesson to try to teach. But I don't like to point the finger at me and say, you know, maybe you're the problem. Maybe you got an issue. But see, we should desire his instruction because I can't think of anything worse than going through a trial and not learning what you're supposed to learn. 
I've, I've used the phrase uh, over the years, uh, I've, I've been in God's remedial school for slow learners. Because I feel like I go through the same lesson over and over again. And I ask God, haven't we been here before? And he'll go, yeah, yeah, we have. Why? Well, because you didn't learn it the first time. And so we're going to go through it again. We should want his instruction in the midst of a trial so we don't have to go through it again, so that we learn what he has to teach us. Then we should desire inner transformation over the trial's elimination. We should desire being changed more than having the circumstances changed. And that's a tough one. I'll admit it. I want the circumstance to go away, to change, to be made better, but I should desire having my life changed on the inside out more than anything else. That's what David prayed for. That's, that was David's desire. So our choice as Christians should be life over death every time. Life over death. What does that mean? Well, I should, I should choose in the midst of a trial eternal life, life change over death. Because remember the, the two choices? I can choose to see it as a, as a trial that's a test that leads to transformation of my life and spiritual maturity. Or I can see it as or allow it to become a temptation which leads to sin, which always leads to what? Death. Not eternal death that we're going to be separated from God for eternity. We lose our salvation. But just the separation of my relationship with him here on this earth. You've had that happen where you react wrongly to a trial and you sin and you get angry and you react and suddenly that wall goes up between you and the Father and you don't have the peace, you don't have the joy and you're separated from him for a period of time because of the sin within you. We should choose life, not death because you and I have been given life in Christ. Live out that righteous life. He's given you life, eternal life, life more abundantly we're told. Why don't we live that out? That's what David was praying. Is I want to live out the righteous life right now, even in the midst of a trial. And he did. Um, if you go back and study his life, when he got into trials and when he got into difficulties and when he was in the cave of Adullam and his men said, hey, there's King Saul. He's trying to kill you. You kill him. What did he say? Who am I to raise my hand against God's anointed? He did the right thing in the midst of a trial. Had that been me, Saul had been toast. I mean, he'd been dead. But David reacted in the right way. He lived out the righteous life. Our beliefs, guys, should impact our behavior. We talk about this a lot. You know, we need to live out what we say we believe. The world is not attracted to religion. It's not attracted to hypocritical Christianity that we say one thing and do another. Our kids are not attracted to that. And one of the reasons they're leaving the church in droves, Joey Turner talked about this in his message on Sunday, one of the reasons they're leaving the church is because they look at us and they go, what is it you have that I would want? It doesn't make any difference in your life other than the fact you get up every Sunday morning and go to church and half the time you complain on your way. What do you have that I would really want? And so they walk away from the faith. We've got to live out what we say we believe, and it, show, it needs to show up in our behavior. Well, this morning we're going to look at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. We're going to cover some territory, but I think we'll be able to get it done. And look at verses 19 through 21. Remember the context. The context is trials. 
We can't lose sight of that. Verses 19 through 21 says this, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. We need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Again, what's the context? Trials. You're in the midst of the trial. What's the temptation? Speak first, think later. Uh, listen later. Just spew it out, whatever you feel. Whatever's on your mind, go ahead and say it. One of the, I think the curses of the business world today, and it's also prevalent in the church, is email. Uh, email is highly destructive. Why? Because it's so easy to send, isn't it? Somebody burns you with an email, and then you're going to torch them right back. And you just, you type, depending on how many words you can type a minute, you just, you send them the scorching email, and you hit send, and then about the time you hit send, you wish you could, gosh, I wish I hadn't sent that. And it just burns somebody, because you didn't stop and think about it. You didn't stop and say, wait, well, wait a minute. I'm going to put this aside. I'm going to come back and read it in 24 hours and see if I really want to send that. And I guarantee if half of us did that, half of the time, we wouldn't send most of the messages we send. But we speak first, and we're really slow to to listen. You know, he says at the beginning of these verses, verse 19, he says, This you know, and really it's just know this. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's like he's saying, if you want to know something, brethren, brothers in Christ, know this. Know this. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Again, it's a command. He wants them to listen very carefully to what he's about to say, what the Holy Spirit's about to say through him. It's, it's, it could be said this way, because you are very dear to me, I am urging all of you, be sure to do these things. Listen to me. Do these things. Do what things? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Listen to me. Man, if you hear anything else this morning, this is so critical to us as men because of what we say to other people. Again, I I put everything in the context of my family because I spend a lot of time with my family. I I think of the things that I say to my children out of anger, um, out of resentment, out of... uh, They just irritate me sometimes. And man, I I can lash out and I say things and I wish I could get them back. And I apologize, but, you know, kids have great memories, don't they? Kids remember. They remember what we say, and they remember the things we do. That's why he says, please know this. Listen to what I'm saying. First of all, be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. This is a critical one, I think, guys, because we don't listen real well. And it says, he's saying, listen to this. Be quick to listen. Listen to what? What are we supposed to listen to? Well, the word of truth is what he talks about in these verses. Listen to the word of truth, the word that's in you, the word of God. Listen to it. But no, I want to react first, and then I'll go look for it. I'll say what I want to say, and then I'll go see what the word says about it, and usually it tells me I shouldn't have said it. Well, it's always easier to ask forgiveness. But no... Listen. Listen to what God has to say regarding what? Your situation. That's why he said, if you lack wisdom, I don't know what to do in this situation. Well, go ask God. 
What am I supposed to do? But you've got to listen to hear. You've got to listen. Listen to what he has to say. Have a teachable mind to wait on God's word. And see, I, I don't want to do that in the midst of a trial. I just want to react. I want my flesh to come out. I just want to explode. I want to just... But listen. Be quick to listen. Not slow to listen. Quick to listen. If we're not listening, we're what? We're talking. Or at best, we're just zoned out. Do you ever zone out when somebody's talking to you? Like your wife or your kids? I mean, my kids can be sitting there talking to me and I say, like, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's kind of what I probably sound like to them half the time. But we'll be in the car and, and my kids can talk and I'll ask them, how's your day? Half the time, they won't say anything. It's fine. I mean, that's my 14-year-old son. It's, how's your day? Fine. Well, like in 20 words or less, how was your day? And then he just shuts down. He's like, uh, hey, I guess it was, it, was, it was okay, Dad. I think for the most part it was okay. You know, and he'll. But I've got some kids who I can't get, like my little girl will not stop talking. If I ask her how her day is, I'll be there for three hours. And I'll know about every event of her day. And I will zone out. I will just. And then later she'll say, Dad, remember when I told you? And I'll go, you didn't tell me that. Yeah, when we were driving home the other day, I remember you asked me how my day was and I told you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember now. But I don't because I zone out. We don't listen because we're so busy talking. George Stulich in his um, commentary on James says this. The pressures of trials make us slow to listen and quick to speak, especially quick to speak in anger. I don't know about you, but that is so true of me. So quick to speak in anger when something happens. And again, it could be minor or it could be major. It could be a flat tire or it could be my kids fighting in the living room while I'm trying to watch TV in the den and I just, you know, need to relax. I can be so quick to respond in anger. But what does he say? No, be quick to listen. But he says, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Speak what? I think what he's talking about is an accusation against God. Aren't we quick to do that? Maybe not verbally, but at least in our heart and our mind to think, okay, God, what are you doing here? Why did you do this to me? What did I do to deserve this? And it's almost like he talked about earlier that we want to blame God for our temptation. We want to blame God for our anger. Well, I wouldn't have gotten angry had you not let this happen. And so what are we doing? We're basically saying, what's your fault, God? You let this into my life. But he says, no, you better be slow to speak. Listen to the word of God and don't accuse God. Don't complain about your circumstances. Don't complain about your lot in life. And we are quick to do that, aren't we? We're quick to talk about how bad things are going and how bad our day's going and how hard everything is and how tough life is. And No, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Don't whine about your lot in life. Don't whine about your lot in life. Uh, I I think I've told you this before, but my mother-in-law, who I I love to death and who I have to because she lives next door, um, she stopped me one day. So we were over at their house for lunch or dinner or something, and she said, uh, you sigh a lot. I said, what? She goes, you sigh a lot. I said, no, I don't. She goes, yeah, you you really do. And I I really, I just started getting angry. And I said, what what are you talking about? What What do you mean? She goes, well... You just, you're always sighing. And I thought, you know, why don't you just shut up? You know? <laughs> I thought that. I didn't say that. And then I sighed. Um, 
But, you know, she pointed something out to me. I went to my wife that night, and I said, God, your mother, I just, oh. She goes, what? And I said, she, she's offended me today. And she said, what? And she said, she told me I sigh all the time. She goes, you do. You're just like your mom. Um, but it's, it's, it's a subtle way of letting people know what? Man, I'm under a lot of pressure. I got a lot in my mind. Oh, man, I'm so stressed out. And it's a way of whining. It's a way of whining. And, you know, we all do it different ways, don't we? We all do it different ways. But it is, it is a way of speaking. I can react a certain way to my kids, and I can speak volumes without saying a word, and my kids know exactly how Dad is. And they know to stay away from him or go sit in his lap. Based on the way I react. Be slow to speak, guys. Complaining and moaning lead to anger. It always leads to anger. You don't get very happy sitting around whining and moaning, do you? Whining about your circumstances, moaning about how bad things are. It doesn't make you happy. It usually leads to anger because you start building up a case of just how bad things are. And that's why he leads to the third thing. Be slow to anger. Watch your anger. If you're going to get there, get there slowly. Don't get there quickly. Slow to anger over the tests that come your way. When you, when you have something happen, take a deep breath. Be slow to anger, not quick to anger. How do you, how do you pull that off? Is it just count to ten? doesn't work for me. I usually don't make it to six. The key are the two ones before it. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's how you're slow to anger. But see, we reverse them. We're quick to anger because we're quick to speak and we're slow to listen. We get them all out of order. So when a test comes your way, a trial comes your way, maybe it's a failure with the temptation associated with the trial. You know, you, the trial comes, you walk outside, you got a flat tire, you explode, you yell at your wife, you yell at your kids, you kick the dog. Um, and then you're, you're angry, angry over your own reaction. You're angry that you got angry. You're frustrated with yourself. Maybe your anger, anger is with God about the condition you find yourself in. I don't like my condition. I don't like the fact that I'm separated. I'm divorced. I'm near bankruptcy. I don't have a job. I don't like my job. I don't like this. I don't like that. Your anger comes out over your circumstances. He says, be slow to anger. Because why? Anger leads to nothing profitable. That's going to be his point. It doesn't profit. What does verse 20 say? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce anything of value. You know, we, we talk about righteous indignation and how, well, you know, God, God gets angry and Jesus got angry. And, you know, well, you're not God and you're not Jesus. And very rarely, if ever, does my anger ever come out in a righteous way. And so we have to be very careful with this. My kind of anger, and he says it's the anger of man. Human fleshly anger does not ever achieve the righteousness of God. So let's take a look at this. My anger, man's anger versus God's righteousness. Getting mad isn't going to change the circumstances, does it? You walk outside after this and you got a flat tire and you just get angry. You kick the tire, you take out the tire wrench and you hit the side of your car and you just... What does that accomplish? Not a blessed thing except make it worse. 
It doesn't change the circumstances. Now, it relieves some tension, and I'm into relieving tension, but go run. You know, do something productive, but it it doesn't usually produce anything. It doesn't make you more Christ-like, does it? People, the guys, the other guys won't come around the car and go, whoa, hey, this is a godly guy. I've never heard some of those words before. He must be speaking in tongues. Um, man, just, man, he's, and he's powerful. Look at the dent in the side of his car. It does not make you more Christ-like, but it will prevent God from accomplishing his work in you. Now, that's kind of scary, isn't it? When I get angry, when I explode, it's as if God steps back and says, all right, buddy, you're on your own. Um, I'm not going to teach you anything in that condition, in that state, in your anger. You're on your own. And you can wail away at the tire. You can wail away at the side of your car. You can wail away at the people around you, your kids, circumstances, life in general, but you're on your own. My anger, man's anger, does not produce God's righteousness. It never will. It can't because it's fleshly. Human anger and God's righteousness are at odds. They're at polar opposites. So when we get angry in the midst of a trial, we're not anywhere near God's righteousness, and we can't achieve it, and we aren't associated with it. We can't reach it because we're so consumed with our anger. Human anger cannot produce God's righteousness. It can't pull it off. It can't produce it. So why do we do it? Because it's of the flesh. It's the natural response for you and I. Listen to this uh, commentator, how he approaches this, this issue. He says, if one's goal is to receive the crown of life, remember that's what James talked about a few verses earlier, one will make moral choices accordingly. If I act in resentment toward the person who has greater comforts of wealth, that's one of the issues going on with the people that James is writing to. Somebody around you has more than you do. Somebody's got a Hummer and you don't. Somebody lives in a bigger home than you do. Somebody is a member of a country club that you aspire to be a member of, but you have resentment. I am not acting according to the righteous life that God desires. If I act in hatred toward the person who has injured me with spiteful attitudes or slanderous words or damaging actions, I'm not carrying out the righteous life God desires. James is honest enough to face the choice clearly. Do I want revenge and comfort and avoidance of hardship, or do I want God's righteousness in my life? See, that's the choice. Which do you want? I can get angry. I can get resentful. I can lash out. I can take matters into my own hand, or I can desire to live a righteous life. Which one do you want more? And see, where this comes... Full circle for us, guys, is when something happens today, and I guarantee something's going to happen today, how will you react? Will you desire to live righteously in the midst of it? Will you begin to pray, Lord, protect me, give me integrity, let me respond in a Christ-like way so that I might have righteousness flow from my life to those around me? Is that going to be your prayer, or are you just going to be quick to speak and quick to anger? See, we have a choice every single day. Verse 21, he gives us some contrast here. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. What's he talking about? He's talking about two different things, wickedness and the word. Wickedness and the word. 
One he says to get rid of, get rid of wickedness, take it off. It's, it's, it's a phrase used commonly of a garment. Just get it off, take it off. Literally get, get it, rid of it off of yourself. But the word, humbly accept it, put it on. Take off one, put on the other. You can't have both at the same time. But both are intentional acts for you and I as believers. I have to decide that I'm going to humbly accept the word, what it's saying to me, what it's trying to teach me. But at the same time, I'm going to get rid of the wickedness. I'm going to remove it from my life in every way that I can. Well, what about wickedness? It's prevalent all around you. Everywhere you look is wickedness, right, guys? The temptation to get angry, the temptation to sin, the temptation to do the wrong thing. Wickedness is everywhere. It's around you. But the word is in you. The, the, the word he uses here, implanted, is, talks about it. It's a seed. The word of God has been placed in your heart and in my heart when we accept Christ, and it's supposed to grow. It's supposed to germinate. It's supposed to manifest itself in greater and greater ways. It's in you. The word in you is the only thing that's going to protect you from the evil around you. It's the word in you. If you don't have the word in you, if you're going through tough times and you're struggling and you come to me and you say, I don't know what to do. And if I ask you, are you in the word and you tell me no, I'm going to tell you, you're hopeless until you get in the word. And you can come meet with me every day for six hours and I can't help you one iota if you're not willing to get in the word. If you will not get in the word, you are totally helpless and hopeless. And I don't care how many counselors you see, Christian or otherwise, you will never change and you will never see help and you will never grow if you refuse to get into the Word. You've got to be in the Word. The Word in you is what protects you from the evil around you. Are you tired of committing the same sins over and over again? Are you tired of the world of in, infecting you? And gosh, I just I keep doing the same things. I'm so tempted to do this and I'm so tempted to do that. You had better get in the Word and you better get the Word in you. And you better start memorizing the word. Because if you don't, you are totally helpless. And you can come to church every stinking Sunday and sit through every sermon Ted ever preaches. And if you don't get in the word and you don't get the word in you, it won't make a difference. And you will continue to struggle with the same sins over and over and over again. The word in you. Well, he infers this, guys, but wickedness threatens your soul. It does. You can't turn on the TV. You can't get on the Internet. You can't drive down the freeway. You can't go to the grocery store and stand in the checkout line and see all the magazines without wickedness infecting your soul. But the Word can save your soul. Is he talking about salvation here? No. Because he's writing to believers. He's not talking about it's going to keep you from losing your, your faith. That's not the point. This is not about losing your salvation. That word means... Save your soul is to make whole and complete, to protect it, to make it whole. Um, He's saying that if you're in the Word, the Word can protect your soul from the effects around you. Again, you've got to be in the Word. Colossians tells us this, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell where? Within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You've got to get into the Word. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you want to have your heart changed? Do you want to have your heart changed? Then you've got to get in the word. And it's more than coming on Wednesday morning at 6.30 as Happy as I am that you're here, and I hope you come back every time we meet. But if this is all you do, and during the week you never spend time in the Word, it will not change your soul. And it cannot protect your soul. You know, I have guys come up, and they, they say, and it's a, it's a great compliment, and they'll say, man, I love Wednesday morning, and it's, it's my midweek boost. And I sit there, and I go, you know, I don't know that I'm really happy about that. Because what it really means for some of them is, I got something on Sunday, I get something on Wednesday, and I get nothing in between. And if that's the way you're living your Christian life, if that's the way you're trying to grow, I beg you to reconsider. To get the word in you every single day, every single morning, memorize it, study it, meditate on it, because it's the only thing that can protect you and transform you, the word within you. The word's got to be put into practice in order to protect us. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to start living it out. You've got to start allowing it to change you. I love Matthew 7. This is a part of the, the message that Jesus gave, the Beatitudes. And he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on what? The rock, the word. See, What's happening in this verse? The winds come, the rain fell, the floods came, slammed against that house. Those are trials, aren't they? Those are difficulties. Those are tough times. But what happened? The house stood because it had been founded on what? The rock. See, when you and I crater, when you and I give in, when you and I fall in the midst of a trial, it's usually because we have no foundation. We don't even know where to go to look in the scriptures because we don't spend any time in the scriptures. So trial comes and we don't have any other option just to get angry, get frustrated, lash out, give up because we don't have a foundation. That's why this is so important to James. That's why it's so important to you and I. Well, he's going to go on in verses 22 through 25 and he's going to make some application. And it's basically doing his believing, doing his believing. This is one of those controversial topics in James' letter. This is the one that everybody gets bent out of shape over, what Martin Luther got bent over, and the reason he refused for years until the end of his life to even consider James as worthy of being put into the canon of Scripture because he thought he was contradicting Paul. And really, I don't see the controversy here, but he's basically just saying you've got to do what you say you believe. And when you do it, it is proof of what you believe. It's an appetizer that leads up to the main course about works and faith. And we're going to deal with that at a later time. Basically, you guys, your faith has got to be practical. It's got to be practical. It's got to be something that affects your everyday life. That's what the word integrity of heart means. It's wholeness. It's, it's completeness. It's not compartmentalized. Practical faith in the Word should naturally grow into practical obedience to the Word. You know, it's great to memorize Scripture, but if you don't apply it to your life, who cares? It's like buying weights and putting them in your house and never using them. What's the good of that? Now, you can 
take all your friends into that room and say, look, hey, look at, look at all my weights. But all, all they got to do is take one look at you and realize that they're mutually exclusive. Um, you don't use these. That's what we do with the Word sometimes. As people walk into our house and they see Scripture things on the wall and they see our Bible in the corner and they look at our life and they go, well, I don't see what difference this makes. I work with you. I live next door to you. What's the difference? It's got to be practical obedience. And we've got to be performers and not spectators. You know, he, he makes a big point out of this. Verse 22, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. There's two kinds of people in the church today, in the family of God. Number one, doers, those who do. And that can literally be translated performer. In, in the day and age James wrote this letter, uh, it was somebody who was... Um, a performer in a play, somebody who did something. They were active. And it carries the idea of action or activity. You're doing something. Okay, pretty basic. But it's one whose actions are visible and observable to those around them. He says, be a doer, not just a hearer. You know, he says, be quick to listen. That's great, but you've got to also do something. Do. Let people around you see what you say you believe. Not just hear what you say you believe. Uh, they've got to be able to observe it. Someone who is a doer, not a watcher. I think in the church today, we've got far too many watchers. People who sit on the sideline and they watch. They're spectators. They come to church to spectate. Entertain me. Teach me something. But they don't do anything. They don't live it out in their daily life. And so James says, be a doer, not just a hearer. The other group of people are the hearers. They're passive. They sit in the audience and they do nothing. They just hear and hear and hear, and they never apply, never live it out, never act it out. It's someone who is content to sit back and observe while doing nothing. Just listen and listen and listen. What does a mirror do? Okay, basically, guys, a mirror does what? It just reveals the truth. That's the reason we don't like to look in it. Um, you know, we'd rather have a picture on the wall of what we look like at 20 than look at the mirror as we look today. Uh, a mirror just reveals the truth. It, expo- it, it exposes flaws. It shows us what other people really see. Um, it, it's just a revealer of truth. It can be a source of encouragement. But it can also be a source of embarrassment because you look in there and you see you've got you know, a piece of lettuce in your teeth and it's been there for three days. Um, a mirror is a revealer. That's why he uses the metaphor and he talks about the word of God. He says a hearer will look in a mirror and just leave. They'll walk up, they'll look in the mirror, and they'll leave. He's exposed to areas that need change, but he refuses to do anything about it. So you look in the Word, you may hear something today, you may hear something on Sunday, you may in your own quiet time look in the Word, it reveals something about you, and you walk away from it, you do nothing with it. That's what he's talking about. You look, you consider, and you do nothing. That's what happens. Simply looking in the mirror does not nothing to change you. You can look in the mirror and go, man, I need to do something about my weight. Wow, I need to do something about, I need a haircut. But if that's all you do is look and leave... The mirror does nothing. It, it can't change anything unless you're willing to be an active participant. 
What does a doer do? He looks and he learns. He learns what's wrong with him and does something about it. A, a, a doer will look in the Word of God and be convicted and see something that needs to change, and he will go out and do something to change it. He learns what's expected of him, and he does it. He's a doer. See the difference? You're either a hearer or a doer. He learns to spot the flaws in his spiritual appearance and change them. You look in the mirror, you see a spot. I can't wear this shirt. i got a business meeting. You go in and change. You look in the Word of God, you see a flaw, you see a spot in your life, you go and change it. That's what a doer does. He looks and he learns. So the Word of God is a mirror for you and I. Looking in the mirror does not change us. It doesn't make us more attractive. It doesn't make us less overweight. Just looking in the Word will not change you. If all you do is walk away. If you refuse to apply it, it's like looking in a mirror and doing nothing with the information you just received. You know what we do? We avoid the mirror. If you're overweight, don't look in the mirror. And don't look in the mirror with your shirt off. Because you're not going to like what you see. So you just walk past the mirror. You avoid mirrors. What do we do when we're living a life that is not righteous? We avoid the mirror of the Word of God. Because we don't like what it tells us. We don't like what it tells us. But he says, look intently. This is the same word used of the disciples when they looked in the tomb for Jesus. Did they just go, eh, he's not there. Oh, eh, nobody. No, they ran into the tomb and they looked and they looked and they searched diligently and with desperation. That's what he says. Look intently. Look with desperation. You should want to look in the word and have it reveal every stinking flaw in your life so that you can change it. A casual glance at the word results in carnal Christians. And that's why I think the church today is ineffective because most of us don't spend any time in this word except what we hear on Sunday morning in a 20-minute message. You've got to study it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to look intently. Don't just look for confirmation. Look for conviction. And this is the part we don't like. We love to hear messages that just affirm us. You're doing a great job. Well, I hope you are. But we also need to look for conviction. Don't just look in the mirror to make yourself look better and think better and think more highly of yourself. Sometimes you need to look for the flaws. That's part of what the Word is about. Because you can only improve your spiritual condition by seeing areas that need improvement. Look in the Word to be changed by the Word. The Word is a mirror to show us ourselves. It reveals the hidden things of the heart and all the deformities of the soul. Well, secondly, abide completely. Don't just read it, obey it. Don't just hear it, live by it. You've got to let it change you. Well, let me wrap it up in just a second. Worthless religion versus pure religion. He ends with these verses that, again, we take out of context um, in, many, in many cases. And we've used these verses, and I feel rightfully so, for our manpower ministry to widows and orphans. And he talks about worthless religion versus pure religion. But basically, guys, if your religion doesn't change you, it is worthless. Go do something else on Sunday morning because you're wasting your time and you're doing more harm to the kingdom than good to the kingdom if it doesn't change you. If it doesn't change the way you talk, the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you act daily, it is worthless. It is of no value because it's not helping you. And you're only deceiving yourself. You're not deceiving God. And you're really not deceiving anybody around you. 
If your religion isn't compassionate, it's impure. That's why he says, if you're not out helping the widows and the orphans, those who are less fortunate than you, if you have no compassion in your religion, it's impure. If it doesn't cause you to think of others, it's soiled, it's dirty, it's defiled. If it doesn't have an outlet, it is impure. It's like a river that flows into a a little tributary and then it flows into a pond and that pond just sits there and there's no outlet and no... Nowhere for the water to go. It stagnates and it's useless. It's impure. That's the picture here. It is self-consumed and it is without worth. It's not pure religion. If your religion isn't practical, it's purposeless. If there's no practicality to what you say you believe, what's the purpose? Pure religion is purposeful, not performance-driven. It's not just acting a certain way so people think more highly of you. It's other-oriented, not self-obsessed. There's a practical nature to it. Getting out, doing something with what you believe. I love the fact that you're here, but if you don't get out from around these tables and go do something with what you hear, I have wasted my time and you've wasted a morning. You could have slept in or gone to work. It's got to be practical. It's got to be put into practice. Well, fourthly and finally, if your religion isn't in stark contrast to the world, it's nothing but a cheap counterfeit. It's a cheap counterfeit. It requires separateness. It demands holiness. And it expects distinctiveness. Well, guys, we've we've wrapped this thing up. And basically, if I could sum it all up, how you react to trials is going to result and should result in righteous behavior, both inwardly and outwardly. It should change the way you speak. It should result in sacrificial love for others. It should result in active obedience. And inwardly, it should renew your heart. It should result in a selfless attitude and a passion for holiness and righteousness. What do we do now? We're wrapping up chapter 1. We're going to take a break for a few months. What are you going to do with what you've just heard? What are you going to do with the next trial that comes your way? Because it is coming. I guarantee it. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to allow it to change your life? I pray that you will. I pray that God will use it to transform you inwardly and outwardly so that we can be the salt and light he's called us to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. I pray, Father, as we take this break over the summer months that we would not take a break from you. I pray that we would not take a break from one another. I pray that you would continue the dialogue, that we would speak into each other's lives, that we would be in your word more than we've ever been before, that we would not see this as a, uh, a break from study, but that we, we would spend time in your word on our own, that we would get together with other guys and do a study together, challenge one another, encourage one another to love and good works, Father that we might live the life we've been called to live, that we might live the life we say we believe, and it changed our behavior. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you that you love us so much that you allow trials to come into our lives that they might transform us. May they do that and transform us in the likeness of your Son. And we pray this in his name, in his name only. Amen. All right, guys. Have a good break. <laughs>